0: Okay, last week, we began chapter two of Colossians, which is where we're going to start today in Colossians chapter two. In the first half of the chapter, we looked at Paul's warning to the complacent church, his call for us to step up, not just to be content as an okay church with an okay attendance, with an okay testimony in our community, but rather to regularly start stepping out and serve the Lord and to aggressively pursue Christ even when it might come at odds with the direction of our popular culture. And it was through Paul's direction that we saw this wholehearted pursuit of Christ could only become possible when we first start to unite as a church, to become united together as believers. If we became united as a church, united in our passion for the gospel, the goal of each and every church should be the pursuit of unity. A togetherness that we can pursue Christ together first to show others the love that has been first shown to us. We give back what we have first received. The bond within the church is limited only by our own personal individual pursuit of Christ in our own lives. Paul made it clear that if we wanted to be a church on fire for Jesus Christ, that if we wanted to be a unified church, that we first have to become individuals who purposely pursue Christ in our own lives. And this means that we have to become people that develop habits of pursuing Jesus every single day. And this can only be done if we're in the Word regularly. And we know this is true because this is true in every other area of life. You don't get your driver's license by sitting behind the wheel just one day and going and taking a test. No, it takes many different times out on the road. It takes many, many heart attacks of your parents and a lot of time and patience on their end, gritting their teeth hoping that you won't drive them into the ditch or into another car, and it takes practice. And this is the way every single area of life is. If you are good at something in your life right now, it is because you have taken the time to become proficient at it. We never wake up and accidentally become better at something. You'll never wake up and accidentally become a more mature Christian. Paul knew this, and this is why he led us to our set of memory verses, something we could practically hold on to. So let's say them together. It says, "Walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to answer each one." There you go. Um, that's Colossians 4, 5, and 6. He says, walk in wisdom. It doesn't mean that we do it one time what is right, but that we continually do what is right. Now, I've got three boys in my house, and uh, every now and then again, they'll do something right. They'll, they'll be up against the wall, and they'll have a decision to make, and they make the right choice. But then they justify later poor choices by saying that one time I, I made the right choice. Have you ever met somebody like that? They go back and they're like, well, one time, 20 years ago, I made the right choice. And so I'm okay. I'm justified in my action. Unfortunately, we all know someone that is like this. We, we justify our poor actions by that one good action a long time ago. And this isn't what we're being called to. It takes a purposed pursuit of what is good and what is right, if we want to see those qualities finally start coming out of us. So our sermon today is titled, It Starts From Within. It Starts From Within. Uh, If you want, I always make extra kids bulletins. Uh, Yes, they're designed for the kids, but that means they're simple and they've got coloring pages. Uh, So if you like taking notes, I've always got them in the back if you're ever interested. They're for more than kids, Uh, but they follow along and give uh, just some questions to kind of help if you're a note taker. And I think we even have crayons there as well. So it starts from within. As we're doing Colossians chapter 2, we're going to go 11 through 17. Two points today. Number one, an outward sign of an inward faith. An outward sign of an inward faith. And the second one is going to be redeemed by faith, proved by works. Redeemed by faith, proved by works. Okay, so an outward sign of an inward faith. Last week, we stopped in verse 10, which was a great stopping point because Paul really was ending his thought there. But now in verse 11, he actually steps up from the thought process from chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. He takes that and he actually takes the whole thing to the next level, the next set of verses. Now, do you remember last week when I said that Paul didn't want his readers to be led astray by witty words? He didn't want somebody with a silver tongue to come in and to lead people astray on something that sounded good. Paul is writing to combat a growing lie within the church that we could somehow earn our way to Christ that we could earn our way all on our own effort. But not only that, but this lie also contains the idea that there are some special ways that super mature Christians or especially spiritual people could only know and that we we could gain that insight, that there was special knowledge. And he's writing against that. And Paul said in verse eight that we needed to be aware of this false philosophy and empty words and deceit. In verse 11, he's gonna begin his refutation or his rebuttal against this idea and these teachings. So if you have your Bibles open, we're just going to have the reference on screen as we'll be going into our Bibles. I kind of go back and forth. Some days I have everything on screen. Sometimes I, uh, I just put the reference. And we're going to be reading verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 11. I'll be reading out of the New King James. It says, In him you were also circumcised, with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That's a lot of references to the word circumcision in a short span. So clearly there's a problem that he's talking about. There's something wrong with this practice, something that's happening in his culture he's trying to point out. Now, if you're unfamiliar with what it is and why the Jews held so dearly to it, I'm going to give you a little background so back in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, uh, there was an, a guy named Abram. Abram was a devout follower of God, um, and he eventually would become the father of many nations. Um, and, and God actually came to him and said, hey, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna do this in your life. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna make you this father of many nations. I'm gonna bless your life uh, in a way that you could never imagine. Now, there were only two problems. Number one, Abe currently had no children, period. So that's a problem of being the father of many nations. Number two, Abe was old. And I'm going to say really old. In fact, Genesis chapter 17 says he's 99 years old when the promise of father of many nations while he's still currently childless is given to him. At 99, God promises, don't worry, soon you're going to be the father of many nations. So... This covenant that, uh, that God makes with him, okay, so God actually makes this plan, this covenant, and a promise that God's backing up, um, a covenant's kind of like a pact uh, that God says, you know what, if you do this, I promise I will uphold my end. Uh, and So he makes a covenant with Abraham and says, Abraham, I will bless your life if you follow me. Now, this covenant's gonna have a couple of external signs to kind of show that this is happening, that it's being followed through. Number one, Abram, Abram would change his name to Abraham. Doesn't seem very big to us. Abram, Abraham, okay, so he's getting a longer name. In the original language, in the original language, it means father of many. For a guy who has no children at 99 years old, this takes a little bit of faith. The guy is changing his name to father of many at 99 years old and he has no children. People are going to talk in the town. The second external sign would be that all of the males in his clan, the people that would be part of this covenantal promise, would have to be circumcised. Every single male would be circumcised. This was also an act of faith. Now, what started as an act of faith in the very beginning became an empty gesture over time it became this religious gesture at one point the generations they started believing that the act of circumcising someone would actually save them that just being part of the family I'm part of the what clan and they're saved they're automatically got a ticket into heaven and this is what Jesus fought against and this is what Paul wrote against and in the book of Romans Paul writes and he says these words in the midst of his argument into the Roman church he says. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, talking about that sign of circumcision, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. The Jews had come to believe that they could act, they could do things to get their way into heaven. They had forgotten that the true purpose of circumcision was actually just an external sign of that inward faith. Now you've probably heard me use this phrase before, an outward sign of an inward faith. And there are things that we as Christians do called observances or ordinances. We call them observances. We do them well, kind of religiously. We do them often and we do them and we repeat them over and over again. Uh, But they're not things that bring us closer to Christ. They're things that we do with our hands and our bodies, but they reveal our hearts. The two observances that we most participate and do are communion and baptism. We regularly hold communion once every quarter, and people regularly get baptized as they get saved. And we're going to be talking about those a little bit. Paul refers to baptism in verse 12, and I'll put that one on the screen. He says, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and working of God, who raised him from the dead. Now, since Paul has brought up baptism, we're going to talk about that for just a second, just to kind of help you guys refresh if you're unfamiliar with this. There are two schools of thought for baptism. The first says that we are baptized by a sprinkling of water, and the other one says we go find a uh, pool or a body of water and we dunk them, okay? So you either get sprinkled or you get dunked. Buried has a, visu- a very visual image with it, okay? The first word that he uses in this phrase and 2.12 says buried with him in baptism. Now, if you've ever been to a funeral to the graveside, you're going to notice that a coffin, once it's set into the ground, doesn't merely get sprinkled with a little bit of dirt. No, it gets set six feet under and then soil is heaped upon it. I mean, it is completely submerged by that soil. It's buried completely under Likewise, Jesus didn't simply taste death. He wasn't sprinkled or lightly touched by it, but rather he went under and was dead for three days. What you're also gonna notice is this is the manner in which Jesus was baptized physically while still on earth by the apostle, uh, the John, uh, not, not John the apostle, John the Baptist, uh, so named because he baptized. So Matthew three thirteen through 16 says, then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Are you coming to me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so for now, for thus it's fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And he allowed him. And when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. Jesus was not only at the river, he had to come up out of it. Meaning that he got in the middle, not to be sprinkled, which you could do at any home. I could get a picture and I could sprinkle you today if you wanted to be sprinkled. But they went to the river so that they could be dunked, completely submerged. That's one of those, what we call evidences for this. Now, that is the method on how we baptized. We, as a church, have decided because of the multiple texts that we actually dunk, we fully submerse when we baptized. But the question then is, when do we baptize? We know how we do it, but when do we do it? Baptism is something that we perform after a believer accepts Christ as Savior, not before. Now there are religions and there are schools of thought out there, and you're probably going to be familiar with some of them that say that we can baptize the young, particularly infants, we can baptize them so that we can guarantee that they will be in heaven if they happen to pass early. However, another look at Colossians 2, verse 12, will tell you that the verse says that we are revealed we are raised. By the dead through what? We are raised by him through what? Through, what's the last word in that sentence? Anybody got their Bible? Through faith, through faith. This is a personal faith that he's talking about. This is not transferable. I cannot have a faith for you so that you can get into heaven. That has to be your faith and yours alone. This verse makes that explicitly clear. And when you take this verse and then you actually cross-reference it, uh, there was a guy named Philip. Uh, who was a follower of Jesus, and he was preaching to this guy who was a eunuch, uh, Ethiopian eunuch. You might have heard the story. Uh, And this explains that interaction a little bit. So uh, following in that story, uh, Philip has just preached the gospel to this guy. And so now as they went down the road, uh, because they're in a uh, a carriage, uh, and they came to some water, and the eunuch says, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. We always build what we believe, our theology or our corresponding doctrine, off of multiple verses. This is the way we properly build what we believe. We go off of multiple verses that all say the same thing. Again and again in Scripture, you're going to see the same picture that baptism is not only by immersion, but it is by dunking, but it also comes after we accept Jesus Christ as Savior. It's an outward sign of an inward faith. And Paul continues onward over the next couple of verses. In verse 13, he states that before Christ, we are dead in our sins and that our hearts, metaphorically, were uncircumcised, that we lacked faith. But since we've accepted him as Savior by faith, He's not only forgiven our sins, but he's wiped clean that slate of charges against us. And this is what he means in verse 14. If you're continuing and looking at that, he says, having wiped out the handwriting requirements against us. And what he's referring to when he says the handwriting of requirements in verse 14 is a legal paper, kind of a certificate of debt. It's an official paper of you owe me that we each hold on to before Jesus Christ. It's a debt that we can never hope to repay on our own. And Jesus didn't just make a way for our sins to be forgiven, but if you pick it up in verse 15, I'll put it on the screen, Jesus also, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. He not only made a way for us to find forgiveness from our sin debt that we could never repay on our own, Paul makes it clear that Jesus took the power that sin held over us and all those who would try to hold over. He says that Jesus disarmed Well, who did Jesus disarm? All of those that would try to keep us in bondage. Every single person, whether it's a uh, a religious person here on the earth or even a demonic presence, Jesus disarmed everybody that would try to keep us from being able to move forward in Christ. Jesus once and for all conquers death, paving the way for us to follow him. So point two today, redeemed by faith and proved by works. Redeemed by faith, proved by works. Now, in Christian circles, uh, there has long been a contention between uh, our faith, what we believe, and our works. So there's a contention. In every church that you go to, there's going to be a different conversation about what we believe and what we do with that belief and how that looks in our daily lives. The Jews, much like the religious of our day, tended towards what we call legalism. Legalism. You've probably heard the term before. If you're unfamiliar with it, legalism is the thought process that if you strictly adhere to a set of rules— you'll become good with God. You, you'll actually earn your salvation by doing specific things uh, that if you follow the very letter of the law and the principle, it, it makes um, it's very strict standards. It's always a very strict standard regardless of where you find it. You get some kind of holiness because of following these strict standards. As early Christ followers found that salvation was now clearly being obtained by faith, and Jesus Christ, many of the old religion tried to retain the power that they had over them, the sway that they had over them. They tried to hinder their growth of the early church by shackling them with unnecessary hoops that the church had to jump through. They were trying to say, whoa, 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 you can't be a growing Christian unless you do this, this, and this. You have certain observances, and certain things that you have to do if you're gonna be a proper Christian follower. And Paul actually explains this. He says, so let no one judge you. In your food and in your drink, or regarding a festival, or new moon, or sabbath, or which are the shadow of things to come, but the substances of Christ. So in the old system, religious perfection was thought to be found by abstaining from or doing a certain activity. So so you got religiously better standing, you were more holy if you if you abstained from certain things, or if you did certain things. You you followed certain very strict practices. However, Paul says, so let no one judge you and what he's referencing is the power that was just taken away remember he just disarmed all of these people he's disarmed them so so let no one judge you he says they're going to try to get you to follow certain actions to look godly to to walk a certain way to be looking godly and that's not true and what paul is saying by these things he says these practices are not what define your relationship with jesus christ these practices are not what defines your relationship with jesus christ And this is where the issue arises and where there's got to be a little bit of judgment and prudence on our behalf. We have to think these things through. What Paul is saying is these things and practices are not defining our relationship with Christ. So the argument goes, if Christ has freed me, I am free to do what? What can I do? And now that I have freedom in Christ. And so we all start finding answers to this. And the answer is we are free to do absolutely anything except for sin. We are free to do absolutely anything except for sin. Now, but what does that practically look like? Like, okay, so I can do anything, but what practically does that look like? Well, thankfully, Paul addresses this very issue in the book of First Corinthians. And he's trying to correct the church because the church is, in all reality, an incredibly immature church in First Corinthians. Uh, the Corinthian church is, they're, they're pursuing their own self and they're doing a whole bunch of stuff. And he actually comes across this very issue. Now, in the city of Corinth, there are several pagan worship sites. Um, Men and women would come and they would sacrifice animals to these false gods. After the sacrifice had happened, the priest for this false idol, this false temple, would actually take that meat, and then they would go sell it on the market. So he got free meat, and then he would actually make a second revenue by selling it. Christians would go and be like, well, there are no false gods. They're not real. This meat is perfectly fine, and I'm going to save a bundle. So they started buying this meat that had been previously sacrificed to idols because they were getting a good deal on it, and the meat was perfectly fine. However, this became a problem, and many were offended by this, especially those who had gotten saved out of those false religions. So these people are like, no, that's not good. These pagan practices. So you're going to have to hold your finger here in Colossians. We're going to turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 8. 1 Corinthians, chapter 8. I'm going to read a little bit of a longer passage, but it's going to make a lot of sense if I read the whole thing. 1 Corinthians, chapter 8. I'll just be reading five verses. Longer for us, typically. Give you a moment as you're finding your place. Okay, and the New King James, as I'm reading, says, so as he's following this argument, he says, however, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some with the consciousness of the idol... Until now, eat it as a thing offered to an idol. He's saying those who used to be in this pagan practice used to think that they were worshiping this real thing, which really turns out not to be. And in their conscious being weak is defiled. But food does not condemn us to God, uh, commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But be aware, lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you, you have a knowledge of eating in idols temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened and eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But thus when you sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So the men and women are faced with this dilemma in this day, and we can take this practically from them they were trying to to save a bundle they they were faced with can i get a bargain on my meat which there's nothing wrong with that meat can i can i get a, a thing that was sacrificed to a false god so nothing's wrong with it but there was another part where they were offending other believers That bargain was causing some Christians to sin, to fall back into the old habit, to the old religion. It brought them back into the mindset of what they had been brought out of. And this is where we read a passage and we take a principle that we can apply it to our lives today. So we're gonna take this principle from this and apply it. Boiled down to its very essence, these believers have a freedom in Christ to do a great many things, just like you guys do. You have a freedom in Christ to do a lot of really cool stuff. It's the same freedom that we have today and then. However, there are some things that they were doing as a congregation in their area that was causing other people to sin. They were doing nothing wrong themselves, but their actions were causing fellow believers to regress and go back to their sin. Now, our automatic reaction typically is, well, why should it matter to someone else what I'm doing in my private home? Why should it matter to to me if it's causing them a problem. It's not in my life, so I'm perfectly fine. After all, why can't I? And you could probably fill in the blank. And this might be somewhat true, but it's also an incredibly self-centered and immature way to view your own life. Yeah, I said that pretty straightforward. And there's a really good reason. Read Paul's words again with me. And I'll put the, just a couple of verses on the screen. But be aware lest someone somehow this liberty of yours becomes a... Stumbling block to those who are weak. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So Paul is setting a very clear warning for us here. And as a mature Christian himself, he makes a decision based on this information. He says, beware lest your actions make somebody else stumble. Why? Well, he answers it by saying that if your actions cause someone else to stumble, to sin specifically, and you are aware of their situation. So you're causing someone to sin and you're aware of it. Okay, so these are the precursors to this. You may be potentially part of the reason. If you're aware that you're potentially part of the reason, then you are committing a purposeful sin against Christ. Okay, so what he's saying is if you're aware that what you're doing is causing somebody else to sin and you continue to do it, you are purposely causing a sin against Christ. You are sinning against your Savior. Those are his words, and he's just a little more direct than I was. Paul makes a judgment call in verse 13. He says, because of this, because of this idea, I don't want to cause somebody else to sin. I don't want to bring somebody belt back down. He says, if he realizes what he's doing is causing somebody else to struggle in their relationship, even though they're weaker, that he'll cut it out of his life for their benefit. He will think of somebody else in their benefit. And there are things that are in each of our lives that there are gray areas for us. They don't cause us to sin. They're not necessarily bad, not necessarily good. There's a lot of gray areas in each of our personal lives. However, what Paul is saying is that should you become aware that your actions are causing somebody else to sin and you refuse to change, then one day you will stand before Christ and answer for why you chose your self-indulgence over somebody else's spiritual well-being. And this is what Paul's warning to each and every single one of us. We all have liberty in Christ. There are many things that we get to do in Christ. You have an opportunity to build those up around you by what you do and say. You have a freedom in Christ to meet people where they're at and to go places to bring people into a relationship with Jesus Christ, to be a positive influence in their lives. But this is a two-edged sword. And on the other side of that two-edged sword, your liberty could be used to destroy somebody else's faith and the life because they are weaker in their faith. Our works, or what we do with our hands and what we say with our mouths, does not save us. What we do with our hands and what we say with our mouths does not save us. However, they are a reflection of what we believe in our hearts. What we do and say is a reflection of what we believe in our hearts. So I'm actually going to end with this question here. So what are your works revealing about your faith to those around you? What are your works revealing about your faith to those around you? And I really want to close with this question today. I've been speaking a lot lately about becoming mature Christians. In the last book in Philippians, Paul was constantly calling us up to become mature Christians. We each want to be mature. Our memory verse has been chosen to reflect this very goal. We become mature in Christ by taking responsibility for our actions, by taking responsibility for our own growth just like a child that eventually will need to leave his home or her home as they grow up. If they're to be successful, at one point, they have to take responsibility for their choices and their actions. They have to be responsible for their shortcomings. My prayer for you is that if you are not already, that you would each become mature Christ followers. I really do pray that. I pray that for you each, every single week. And that in your maturity, you would pass on your wisdom towards one another. And what you choose to do, what you choose not to do displays your faith and your own maturity in Christ. You have options and you have opportunities. And this week you're gonna be with family. Anybody gonna be around family that does not know the Lord? I'm gonna be around family that does not know the Lord. This week you have an opportunity, especially at Thanksgiving, to show by your actions and by your words what a strong, mature believer in Christ looks like. Or you have an opportunity to destroy somebody else's faith by your actions and words. And the choice is really yours. And what Paul is calling us to, is he's saying you have a great many freedoms. There are so many things you can do in Christ and they might not be sin for you, but be aware. Be aware of how your attitude and actions reflect in others because as a mature Christian, you should be looking out to build other people up and not tear them down. So let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you so much for your word. And I thank you for the challenge that Paul has given us. Help us to be people who are aware of the things that we say and do. Lord, not just for our own benefit, but for those around us. Help us to purposely go about our lives in such a way that we build other people up, that we bring them closer to you Help us not to be ignorant. Lord, help us to have open eyes this holiday season as this is the time of year where we spend a lot of time with family and friends, especially those who don't know you. Help us to see ourselves as they see us. Lord, help us to realize the shortcomings in our own areas. Help us to be wise enough and mature believers that we take responsibility for our actions instead of making excuses. Lord, help us to become the mature believers in you that we so desperately want. Lord, continue to bless this congregation in their week. In Jesus' name. Hey, this is Pastor Jake. I just wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening to these messages that we put online. I do pray that these are helpful for the times you just can't be with us in person. I want to remind you that this recording is never meant to substitute God's good plan for you to be in a community of faith where the word of God is being preached and proclaimed. We are told by scripture to gather together so that we each belong to a local body of believers where we are being shaped by being known by using each of our gifts and walking faithfully in God's word. So thank you again so much for listening and growing with us. I hope you enjoyed today's message.